Welcome to Rule of Law Talk, a podcast series of the World Justice Project, or WJP. The series is designed to bring you fresh insight into rule of law issues of the day. I'm Betsy Anderson, the Executive Director of WJP, and I'm delighted to have with me today as my guest, Ed Rikosh, a longtime human rights activist and innovator, and a co-founder of a new human rights organization, the Rights Collab. rule of law is considered the province of governments, judges, and lawyers, but we here at WJP take a broader approach. Certainly, judges and lawyers play a key role, but so do people from every disciplined profession and walk of life. Doctors and engineers, teachers, artists, business people, and ordinary citizens are all stakeholders and critical players in upholding human rights and building a broad-based rule of law culture in society. They do so often in collaboration with others in community groups nonprofit organizations, think tanks, trade and professional associations and unions, broadly referred to as civil society organizations or CSOs, that advocate for better government, clearer and more effective laws and regulations, and their enforcement, protection for civil liberties, checks on corruption and accountable government. This is the context for recent work carried out by Ed and his colleagues at Rights Collab in cooperation with the pro bono legal team at the law firm of DLA Piper. Their new report, the business case for civil society explains the role that civil society organizations play in upholding rule of law and human rights, the challenges that these organizations are facing around the world, and the critically important role that the private sector can play in supporting these organizations and their rule of law role. I'm delighted to have Ed here today to tell us more in person. Welcome, Ed. So let's begin, Ed, with you introducing the Rights Collab. What's your mission and what's the approach? Well, thank you, Betsy. Thanks for the invitation. I'm really glad to be here. Uh, the mission of Rights Collab is to advance human rights by exploring new strategies that bridge uh, existing fields like civil society, technology, business, and finance. And we're trying to do that in an experimental way. Uh, living up to our name of Rights Collab by being collaborative in new and uh, unusual ways and uh, innovating or trying to innovate or exploring new ideas through laboratory-style approaches. Okay, fascinating. So tell us about this project and and in particular, why civil society? What are you worried about there and and why that focus? Well, uh, civil society for me has always been critical to the protection of of human rights. I'm a human rights lawyer back from the days when I was in law school. Um, but my own uh, sense of uh, what was critically important for advancing human rights uh, was to supplement the, the, the foundation that we have of a normative framework with international human rights treaties and international institutions that are designed to implement those treaties with, for me, what is the most critical element, uh, locally-based civil society that is claiming those rights and making them real and making change happen on the ground. So that's that's my own personal sense of priority. And what I've been observing, along with many others over the last few years, uh, are some very uh, uh, unfortunate trends that are undermining uh, all the great developments that we've seen in the human rights community over the last couple of decades. We see uh, political trends of rising populism and other political trends that uh, mobilize people against uh, the liberal values at the core of human rights action. 
and uh, we see uh, international institutions being undermined and eroded, and we see the very normative framework of human rights being questioned. And so that's of great concern, and uh, I'm very engaged in looking for new ways to think about how do we buttress human rights when it's under pressure. Okay. Sounds uh, like an important and timely focus for your work, but before we dig into what you're doing, tell me what you mean exactly by civil society. Do you take this broad uh, uh, view of it that I was suggesting we have here at WJP, or are you focused more, for at least these purposes, on human rights organizations? Or yeah, well, no, I, I take a broad view, very similar to the one that you articulated. I think of civil society as being any kind of intermediating institution sitting between individuals and the state. Uh, that includes churches, includes uh, trade unions, includes uh, any, any organized form where people are gathering and trying to do something together. Um, but for practical purposes, it's important to be more concrete when we're thinking strategically. And uh, for practical purposes and doing the work, certainly on this research project, developing the business case for civil society, I think of civil society as having two core components that we need to talk to business about. And one component is, an is a structural component, the very institutions of civil society. And for business purposes, they're primarily focused on the formal organizations. They don't have a way to interact so much with informal groups or social movements. But um, they are very able to interact with institutionalized groups like civil society organizations. So that's the institutional or structural element. And then there's also a functional element, which is equally important to talk to business about. Uh, the, there are functions such as, uh, well, the civic in engagement in general is a function, and that breaks down to certain human rights which you can think of as being instrumental, uh, as well as being important in and of themselves. And I, what I mean are rights like freedom of expression, freedom of association, freedom of assembly. Those rights are important just because they're human rights, but they're also important as instruments to enabling individuals to individually and collectively with each other, claim certain rights to engage with decisions that are going to affect their daily lives. Okay, and tell us a little bit, your, your paper is entitled The Business Case for Civil Society. It's making an argument that business should support civil society, but let's talk about that. That, that sounds challenging for some business. They depend on government. Uh, sometimes government is their customer. Sometimes government, certainly everywhere, government creates an operating, a regulatory environment in which they operate. Can they really afford to rock the boat with a government that may be cracking down on its civil society? Yeah, well, uh, the paper makes a case that in some cases they can't, they can't afford not to. But before getting to that, um, it's important to say that uh, it, that uh, the paper itself is focusing on one element of the picture. It's focusing on the self-interest of business in getting engaged. But more important than the self-interest is the responsibility of business to get engaged. And those responsibilities are captured very well in international standards, specifically in the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, which makes clear what the responsibilities of, of companies are in cases where they may have some sort of a role in uh, human rights harm having taken place. And uh, that's uh, the most important uh, feature of the business responsibility is, is their own normative and moral responsibility to act in certain cases. And you certainly see that uh, that happens from time to time 
that a company is willing to own up to its responsibility. Most recently, for example, a number of companies uh, made the decision not to go to Davos in the desert because of uh, what happened with Khashoggi in Turkey. And uh, they were doing that in part perhaps because they were calculating uh, the bottom line impact on their business. But I think most importantly, they were also thinking about their own values as human beings and as companies when they decided not to be complicit in what they regarded as uh, a wrong moral choice. So uh, that needs to be said at the outset. But having said that, uh, the paper focuses in particular on harnessing the evidence and the arguments that already exist and are getting stronger by the day, that it is also in the self-interest of businesses to get engaged to support civil society, even if the connections are not so well recognized all the time. And if the, if the paper serves any purpose at all, what I hope that it serves is to, by corralling all those arguments and evidence in one place, making it much clearer and easier, easier to articulate why businesses should in fact act and why they can afford to support civil society, in fact, might not be able to afford not acting in support of civil society. Okay. Um, so tell us a little bit more about what those arguments are. Why does this help a business at the bottom line? Well, um, so the paper uh, recites uh, eight different arguments uh, with evidence to support them. And there's two basic categories of those arguments. There's four arguments that you might call macro arguments showing the correlation between civil society and economic growth and innovation and sustainable business and uh, reducing corruption, uh, interests that are shared interests between uh, companies and civil society organizations. But particularly important are the micro-arguments, what I might call the micro-arguments, four arguments about where, how supporting civil society is important to the bottom line of businesses. And those arguments uh, stem from value that the, the, the uh, businesses derive from uh, relationships with customers, with investors, uh, with employees, and the value that they obtain from uh, managing their risks in better ways so that they can avoid operational costs like work stoppages and other costs. And um, what we, a lot of this is already self-evident from reading the headlines, especially here in the United States where we're sitting, because uh, we have seen companies start to act and uh, in ways that I, I think are obvious to all of us. We saw Merck uh, pull out of uh, a presidential commission uh, after Charlottesville because it didn't want to associate itself with the official position of the U.S. of the presidency on what happened in Charlottesville. And Merck uh, pulled out, followed by many of their peer companies. Um, we saw Levi's. And that was... That was uh a bottom line calculation or a moral calculation? Uh, I would venture to say it was probably both. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, certainly I wouldn't take away from the moral calculation. I think in large part those decisions are based on human beings who are running companies deciding what the correct moral choice is. They may be, but human beings are complex in their decision making. They take into account a lot of factors. And I'm sure that um, they're, I'm sure that business interests also comes into the calculation when a leader is making a decision like that. Uh, but I certainly don't want to take away from the moral choice. I think in many cases, uh, when 
CEOs in particular are putting their personal names out there, I think they're making a moral statement mm -hmm. as well as perhaps uh, considering their business interests, which is, uh, of course, their job responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, so another example would be uh, when there was a shooting at a Levi's store and Levi's adopted a new policy, not only to have zero tolerance of weapons in their stores, but to support organizations that were advoca advocating for better gun control. What better support for civil society could there be than a large company like Levi's saying, we agree with you and we're willing to put our name behind what you're doing and we even recognize our obligation to dig into our pockets and help out like everyone else and help, help finance your activities. So there are increasing numbers of examples like this in the United States uh, uh, in, recent, in the last year or two. Uh, it has been slower to develop in other countries um, but we're seeing that start to happen too. And uh, I just mentioned the Davos in the Desert uh, event um, and the decision by many CEOs not to travel there. Uh, one of them was the CEO of Siemens and he published a, a piece on his LinkedIn page just last Monday um, saying that uh, he was not going to Davos and what the reasons were and uh, very much speaking to his peers about what the calculations are both business calculations and moral calculations. You can find both of them there in his piece. And uh, for the CEO of a country with German origins to talk about the, the uh, penalty for silence when atrocities are happening is a very, very significant thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned the, the sensitivities that companies might have, particularly to their customers, their investors, their employees. Are there business sectors or particular industries that are more uh, sensitive to these than others and where this is really getting traction? Well, I, I think it very much, the answer is yes, the short answer is yes, but I think the longer answer is it really depends very much on the arguments. I think some arguments make more sense for some industries, some arguments make more sense for other industries. For example, in the extractive industry, uh, the uh, cost, the some often uncalculated cost of uh, social conflict in a in a on a in a mining site or another place where there's extractive activity, that's very very significant. And CSOs are critical to helping a company understand what those costs are going to be because their own people are not necessarily going to be telling them. And if they don't have good channels for communicating with NGOs or CSOs, and if they don't have ways, and if those CSOs are under threat and at risk of disappearing, that's gonna be a loss to the company who needs to manage its operating risks. Okay, great. Well, you're headed exactly where I wanna go is actually talk about some specific cases because I think the devil's in the details here mm -hmm. and uh, companies may well buy that this is in their interest, but it's it's still very tricky terrain uh, when they're operating in an environment that may be uh, constraining space for civil society. What actually can they do? What's proving useful, impactful, helpful to civil society and manageable for companies? Yeah. Well, there's a, a very wide range of things that companies can do, all the more reason why they should do something. And it really depends on what the company's appetite is, what the circumstances are, what the uh, respective costs and benefits are. But for example, uh, a simple statement 
the signaling value that a company can provide by simply saying something uh, publicly about, uh, a, let's say, a crackdown on civil society in, in a country somewhere. The simple statement that uh, we see shared value in an uh, enabling environment for civic freedoms and business activities, something as neutral as that can have a really important political impact that uh, advocates that are willing to take that on and go further are, are able to do something with. Um, other examples would be uh, uh, adopting policies. Uh, several companies have adopted non-interference policies where they have as a formal policy inside their company with uh, some attention to implementation uh, that they will uh, do nothing to harm human rights defenders. They will, they will incorporate into their due diligence procedures and their other protocols guarantees that they are doing no harm themselves in their operations to human rights defenders. Uh, Haynes has such a policy, Adidas has such a policy. There are a number of companies that have adopted those policies. That's a very simple and uh, straightforward thing that a company can do. It would be very hard for any, anyone to criticize a company because they say they don't want to interfere with the work of human rights defenders. But does it help the human rights defenders? Are there examples where the mere adoption of a policy by a company that we're not going to get in the way actually affords some protection to those organizations? Well, you know, certainly any, any lawyer knows that uh, policies have impact because when there's a written stated policy by a company, it means they have to, they're, they're accountable for that policy. And uh, it, there aren't, strictly speaking, legal standards that will make them accountable for uh, interfering with human rights defenders. I mean, of course, there are certain things that are prohibited. They're not certainly not allowed to target human rights defenders or to be complicit in harm coming to human rights defenders. However, um, a, a non-interference policy is much broader than that, and it creates accountability mechanisms that are much softer and therefore much broader than a legal standard would be. And, uh, uh, and of course, they also have the court of public opinion, otherwise known for companies as markets, uh, that they're accountable to. So if, if Adidas has a policy of non-interfering, of non-interference with human rights defenders, and then does something that's perceived by their public, by consumers, to be inconsistent with that policy, they will have a price to pay. So this is a company stepping up and saying, we believe in this, we're, we're putting a stake in the ground, and we're going to hold ourselves accountable to our own policy to abide by this. Mm -hmm. Okay. So internal policies, public statements, what else? Well, uh, they can uh, uh, get involved and they can, the terminology is engaged, they can become engaged in both uh, legislative processes and judicial processes that might be harming civil society organizations. Uh, one famous phenomenon are SLAP lawsuits. SLAP, lawsuit, SLAP stands for strategic litigation against public participation. This has become an increasing phenomenon. Often companies are behind SLAP lawsuits, but also governments are sometimes behind SLAP lawsuits. And uh, right-thinking companies that want to do the right thing uh, can go on the other side of those SLAP lawsuits. They can influence their peers to drop such lawsuits. They're making arguments about how they harm the interests of the economy as a whole, or a business in particular, or of an industry in particular. They can go up against governments that are bringing SLAP lawsuits uh, through often public statements, but also through 
private interactions, which business, as we know, businesses often engaged in um, in relationship building with both policymakers and peers and a uh, very wide range of stakeholders. Yeah, uh, they are very, very influential in the, through those relationships. And by simply raising an issue about something like a slap lawsuit or some other action that was taken against human rights defenders or civil society organizations, they can have a big impact just by simply speaking up, even when it's in private. I would imagine that it would be helpful for businesses to do this uh, together, you know, maybe under the auspices of the Chamber of Commerce or some other kind of trade association. So there's some solidarity there in, a, in, in the dynamic with the government. Do you see that happening more and more? Yeah, that is happening more and more. Uh, uh, for example, um, on uh, labor issues or minimum wage issues in Southeast Asia, there have been a number of companies, uh, the apparel industry in particular has been very vocal and active in, uh, in asserting the rights of individuals to strike and to uh, protest for increases in minimum wage and issues of that nature. Um, furthermore, uh, there is, uh, and more, more, even more specifically relating to su supporting civil society, there's an initiative that, that has been initiated called the Business Network for uh, Civic Freedoms and Human Rights Defenders, which is an opportunity for companies to collaborate with each other, to share information and to learn about uh, ways in which they can support civil society. Because this is a very, very much changing landscape. Uh, things are moving very quickly and uh, companies uh, can benefit from sharing their own experiences and their own thinking about this evolving context. And that business network, which is supported by several NGOs, including the Business and Human Rights Resource Center and the International Service for Human Rights and the B Team. Uh, that business network is a very important uh, common activity that companies can join. Okay, interesting. Can you give us an example uh, where a business has failed to act to support civil society and suffered for it? Well, um, I wouldn't say uh, that there are examples where uh, businesses have suffered from not supporting civil society in the, in the broad sense of civil society as a whole, because of course that's such an amorphous concept and it's very hard to trace causality right. in any really concrete way. However, on a day-to-day on a, on a -day basis, businesses suffer from not uh, engaging sufficiently with civil society, not supporting them, and listening to them. And, and this is fairly well known. Uh, for example, um, uh, one, one one, one very, very uh, 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 remarkable case was uh, Tahoe Resources, which uh, did not do a good job of communicating with uh, in, in the indigenous community in Guatemala and with some CSOs that were representing the interests of the Guatemalan, of the indigenous community in Guatemala. And uh, the result was a lawsuit. Ultimately, the result was a lawsuit. That lawsuit. Uh, was uh, found in the lawsuit the court found against Tahoe Resources and the share price of Tahoe Resources fell by 40% uh, in, uh, in, in the span of a week. And uh, so it was punished by the market for failing to po properly recognize what the risks were, for communicating about them, and for trying to uh, remediate the problem before it before it before it resulted in a lawsuit shutting down their minds. Okay. So that kind of thing happens all the time. 
And uh, uh, the tricky part, though, to understand as a company is how lots and lots of little gestures add up to a whole. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to necessarily show up so clearly on the spreadsheet. And that's why there's a response. There, there's, it's incumbent, let's put it this way, it's incumbent upon companies to understand better how, what all the connections are between what the activities are of that local civil society group somewhere and uh, their rating on ESG indicators somewhere else. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a whole ecosystem for people that are for people that are really schooled in how civil society functions in the world and uh, the relationship between grassroots and global CSOs and so on, we know there's a whole ecosystem of information uh, dissemination that happens so that the local community group is connected in, uh, let's say, uh, Myanmar, is connected up with the Geneva-based high-profile international NGO which is then feeding information to um, all the consultancies that try to evaluate ESG risk. That's all one ecosystem, and it's not so obvious to companies that aren't in that world. And so I think it's incumbent on companies to understand that better, how that ecosystem works, and to understand the stake that they have in managing their own operations and their own risks in supporting that ecosystem. Mm -hmm. and, and how do they do that? What, what are, other than read your fine report? Um, oh, how do they understand that? Yeah. Well, they can join the business network, and that's a place where peers are uh, are helping, are working together to try to understand that better. They can work with some of the NGOs that are intermediaries, uh, like the ones that I mentioned that are supporting the business network, mm -hmm. and many others that are starting to get involved in that. They can um, have their internal meetings where they uh, try to break down some of the barriers uh, between, for example, the CSR function and some of the other functions inside their companies because these days most companies have someone in their team who knows pretty well uh, what's going on within the civil society community, but the, that person is not necessarily present at the decision at the meetings where the decisions are being made that have impact on that mm -hmm. civil society. Mm -hmm. So I think there's some internal uh, uh, process building that also needs to take place. Interesting. Let's shift from the businesses to the civil society organizations and and their responsibilities to make this a productive mm. dialogue. Um, right. We've uh, everyone we can think of examples where that conversation has gone um, very poorly and not right. in a constructive way for That's either right. civil society or business. What guidance do you give to civil society to make this work? Well, so uh, civil society is extraordinarily diverse, as you know. So there's different roles for different parts of civil society. And it's the right role for some parts of civil society to simply make the facts known and to make sure it's very, very clear to, the, to decision makers about harms they might be causing or complicit in. Um, but there's also roles for parts of civil society to understand better how business thinking works so that the arguments can be made and have more traction. And this is, this is it, take, it takes both sides to really be invested in the process for it to work properly because there are different frames that uh, civil society and business have. And those frames, unfortunately, sometimes get in the way of what would otherwise be shared interests. And uh, as an example, um, it's it, the, the classic human rights NGO thinks of themselves as uh, doing fact-finding and monitoring. That's a tried and true NGO or or human rights group strategy for making change happen on a particular human rights issue. So they're doing fact-finding and monitoring. 
Uh, that doesn't sound right to business ears. Fact-finding and monitoring, we don't want to be monitored. Uh, however, businesses do want to gather information. They want to gather information and reduce risk. Well, you know, there might be a high degree of overlap there as, as illustrated by a couple of the examples I already mentioned. Another example would be um, from a CSO perspective, CSOs are always talking about we need to build more alliances. We need to find alliances outside of the already converted. We need to branch out more and bring in business, let's say. So CSOs think of that as alliance building. Uh, companies aren't feeling like they're there to serve alliances. However, they understand the value of trust. They need their stakeholders to trust them. Well, that's almost the same. That can be boiled down in specific situations into almost the same thing. That's, that can be common ground on the right issue in the right time if articulated in the right way by a CSO. So I think it, what CSOs can do is they can understand that a little bit better so that they don't miss the opportunities when if they frame their arguments in a slightly different way, they'll get the understanding that they're seeking to get. It's one of the uh, pieces of your report that I found most uh, intriguing, uh, where you make this argument that it's really, in many cases, not all cases, not but all in many cases, cases yeah. it's the interests are the same, but the vocabulary is different. And yeah. you've got this nice chart where in one column you've got CSOs say they say they do dot dot dot, and then on the other column companies want, and right. they're aligned, and yet you could. Very much right. see how right. those conversations would go past each other. Yeah. And of course, you know, uh, it need, for anyone, for any attentive listener, it needs to be said that, of course, they're not always aligned. And uh, at, at, at the bottom line, uh, someone seeking change is, uh, is addressing issues of power. And uh, so that means sometimes making arguments that are unwanted and pushing. So that is also present plenty of times. But uh, I think, but my own view on this is that we don't want that to obscure all the opportunities to collaborate constructively. And so we want to be able to differentiate between when we need to speak the truth to power and leave it at that, and when there's an opportunity to engage and collaborate. Great. Well, um, this uh, paper is a good starting point for finding that uh, terrain, and I definitely encourage our listeners to find it. Uh, tell us what's next for this project and, and what resources you might encourage folks to seek out if they want to learn more. Well, so what, what's next is that, uh, well, where we are right now is uh, we have published a paper as Rights Collab, and that's part of a collaborative uh project with others to publish similar research and there's a, uh, there's, an, a, there's a couple of other companion reports coming out at the same time. There's a report by the Business and Human Rights Resource Center and the International Service for Human Rights called Shared Space, which covers similar ground and in fact provides a broader framework that, that helps give guidance to companies about uh, protocols they can implement internally in order to manage these issues. Uh, there's another report out by the B team, which has uh, issued a study demonstrating some more evidence about the connection between economic growth and, uh, and civic freedoms and human rights defenders. So uh, there's a variety of research that's out there. The next step is to get that circulating more and to get discussions to start to happen. And a key vehicle for that is the business network that I mentioned. So 
I hope that a growing number of companies will become engaged in that business network. And I think that business network, which will be an ongoing dialogue, will continue to explore new ways to push the needle forward. Excellent. Ed, thank you so much for taking the time to be here and for this good work. And I uh, really wish you well with Wrights Collab and look forward to seeing what you bring innovation and collaboration to next. Thank you, Betsy.